Yesterday, I reported on the efforts of the technocratic elite to force on people the most heinous of all ideas that the global elite have invented yet. The, the, the proposal that the state control the most intimate details of your lives through the control of human reproduction or population control. That argument has been long since debunked as having no basis in reality, yet the technocrats continue to argue for population control in the name of the climate dogma that is all the rage among the political elite. And it is a dogma, but not one that makes much sense unless you understand just how long the global elite have been pushing this on the entire human race. So today I'm going to present to you the next part in my promised series on sustainable development, which will look at the origins of the concept and will include how the Catholic Church got involved in this mess in the first place. As you'll see shortly, the involvement of the Church in this area goes back much further in recent history than the present pontificate, with origins in the days immediately following the Second Vatican Council. And every pope since then has been involved in this to some degree. Most of you won't be surprised by that, I'm sure. Our story begins briefly in the 19th century, in Prussia, where the modern bureaucratic state was born. Bismarck's government famously developed the idea that most social pro problems were simply managerial problems, and that the state can solve any problem by hiring skilled bureaucrats to oversee the issue through official mechanisms of the state. If this sounds familiar from education, well, it shouldn't be that surprising. I'll be covering the collapse of Catholic education at some point in the future as well, and this will we'll revisit this topic at that point. But yeah, this sounds like the dream of most American politicians today. But where do you think they got the idea from? In Prussia, the concept of sustainable development, which that's not what they called it, but it does come from there, first took root in its management of the national forest systems, which sought to control fires and preserve for recreational use the forests of the country. That doesn't really sound like much of a problem to most people. And this idea would take root in Germany after the collapse of Prussia, and got exported around the Western world, including to the United States. There were numerous activists in the U.S. and abroad at the time who fell into two camps. The first were the technocrats, and the second were the kind of people who had a sort of religious understanding of the land and the impact it could have on people. A number of these were strange sorts of Christians. The argument in the 19th century was set against the backdrop of the Industrial Revolution and the extreme examples of pollution that were becoming more and more commonplace, with rivers and coastlines becoming so polluted that they became dangerous. Some figures in the U.S. who contributed to this were men like Ralph Waldo Emerson and numerous others. Add to this backdrop the westward expansion of the U.S. and the extermination of wildlife populations in the process, like the buffalo and, in some places, the beaver, and the stage was set for the development of the National Park Service, which happened under the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt for the explicit purpose of protecting wildlife and preserving nature. And that was the status quo for some time. Given that two world wars and a Great Depression punctuated the first half of the 20th century, it's understandable that this area of policy and control did not gain much momentum. That began to change in the 1960s. Here we saw the burgeoning environmental movement taking shape, due to events like the Love Canal fires, concerns over DDT, and Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring. This is often the period that is credited with the birth of the modern environmental movement. By the end of the decade, Richard Nixon would establish the Environmental Protection Agency, thus giving us the managerial solution to the environmental problem. But still, population control wasn't the main agenda. Yes, as you saw with my video yesterday, the proponents of population control began making their arguments really in the 1960s, although there were people also arguing for that long before that. 
But in the 1960s, we were having arguments for capping and reducing human population to levels not seen on Earth since quite literally the time of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. This was itself fed into by the sudden availability of contraceptives or in beginning earlier that decade. We're talking chemical contraceptives and their legalization by the Supreme Court in cases like Griswold v. Connecticut. Which brings us to the Catholic Church. It was in this decade that the Church began to dip the red-shoed papal toes into the issue of environmentalism. Pope Paul VI was the first pope to address the UN in any capacity, as far as I know, and one such address was delivered in the form of a message delivered to the Secretary General of the 1972 UN Conference on the Environment. Again, this is Pope Paul VI we're talking about, some 40 years before the current pontificate. Here are a couple of excerpts that will sound eerily familiar to us today in the aftermath of the Amazon Synod. Quote, Today, indeed, there is a growing awareness that man and his environment are more inseparable than ever. The environment essentially conditions man's life and development, while man, in his turn, perfects and ennobles his environment through his presence, work, and contemplation. But human creativeness will yield true and lasting benefits only to the extent to which man respects the laws that govern the vital impulse in nature's capacity for regeneration. Both are united, therefore, and share a common temporal future. So man is, is warned of the necessity of replacing the unchecked advance of material progress, often blind and turbulent, with newfound respect for the biosphere of his global domain, which, to quote the fine motto of the conference, has become One Earth. End quote. Here we see the first real statement of the environment and man's relationship with the created world, and it was given to the United Nations by a Roman pontiff. And I don't have a problem with most of what he said there, although that one, that one Earth stuff does sort of give me chills. But here's a second excerpt from that same message. It's a little longer. Quote, Interdependence must now be met by joint responsibility. Common destiny by solidarity. This will not be done by resorting to facile solutions. Just as the demographic problem is not solved by unduly limiting access to life, so the problem of the environment cannot be tackled with technical measures alone. The latter are indispensable. It is true, and your conference will have to study them and propose means to rectify the situation. It is only too clear, for example, that industry being one of the main causes of pollution, it is absolutely necessary for the industrial operators to perfect their methods and find the means, as far as possible without harming production, to reduce, if not eliminate completely, the cause of pollution. In this task of purification, it is clear, too, that chemical research workers will play an important role and that great hope is placed in their professional capacities. But all technical measures would remain ineffectual if they were not accompanied by an awareness of the necessity for radical change in mentality. All are called to clear-sightedness and courage. Will our civilization, tempted to increase its marvelous achievements by despotic domination of the human environment, discover in time the way to control its material growth, to use food, Earth's food with wise moderation, and to cultivate real poverty of spirit in order to carry out urgent and indispensable reconversions? We would like to think so. The very excesses of progress lead men, and significantly the young, to recognize that their power over nature must be exercised in accordance with ethical demands. The saturation caused in some people by a life that is too easy, and the growing awareness and a large number of the solidarity that links mankind, thus contribute to restoring the peace, respectful attitude on which men's relationship with his environment is essentially based. How can we fail to recall here the imperishable example of St. Francis of Assisi and to mention the great Christian contemplative orders, 
which offer the testimony of an inner harmony achieved in the framework of trusting communion with the rhythms and laws of nature. End quote. Again, that all sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Although this is definitely much more moderate than the things we hear today. Paul VI made his first environmental references in his encyclical Populorum Progressio, which is often considered the first Catholic social teaching encyclical of the conciliar era. It is a truly strange encyclical, as it advocates for far greater technical solutions to social problems than any encyclical had before. Previous entries in Catholic social teaching emphasized the need for private property, to be in the hands of as many people as possible, and the strengthening of guilds and the dangers of unbridled materialism, all of which are anti-technocratic solutions. They're very decentralizing in their nature, which is why they're not socialism. But Popular and Progressio addressed not only the issues of its day, but also embraced some of the secular mechanisms for solving problems. The powers that be must have seen this as an endorsement of sorts for their program. The backdrop to this was the groundbreaking book written by the Club of Rome called The Limits to Growth. That report has been revisited numerous times, but in essence, it states much of the environmental data we hear bandied about by the media all the time now. Sea levels are rising, 75% of the world's fisheries are being exploited beyond their capacity to recover, degradation of soil, and the links that environmental technocrats always make between extreme poverty and environmental destruction are made here as well. This report was drafted by the Club of Rome, a secular organization that has often been linked with strange power plays that are often the stuff of hypotheses about elite schemes to rule the lives of normal people. To be clear, though, this document does help lay the groundwork for the, doc- for the documents that would follow, including the famous book Our Common Future, a book released in the mid-1980s based on the work of the United Nations. This can be considered the sacred text of the early environmental technocratic movement, I have a copy of both the Club of Rome's report and our, and our Common Future in my library, and I recommend anyone who is interested go on Amazon and buy a copy of either of those books. Our Common Future lays out the entire program as it has been promoted since the 1980s. That book, in technical circles called The Bruntland Report, provides the definition of sustainable development most commonly used by technocrats and even church officials today, and that definition is this. Development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. It is a deceptively simple definition, but as I stated in part one of this series before the Synod, no one really knows what the needs of future generations are, aside from clean water, clean air, and vibrant croplands and the like. But a later definition in the same book gives the program away. Quote, In essence, sustainable development is a process of change in which the exploitation of resources, The direction of investments, the orientation of technological development, and institutional change are all in harmony and enhance both current and future potential to meet human needs and aspirations. End quote. Well, how do we do things in harmony? By direction of the state. There really is no other option for these people. And how do we do this on a global or planetary level? Do you get the picture yet? Five years after this document was released, the famous Earth Summit in Rio happened, where leaders from around the world met and pledged to address the climate crisis and to adopt the sustainable development goals that were starting to come out of the UN. That meeting didn't exactly go well, with accusations of human rights abuses being leveled against the host country. That host country was, again, Brazil. Again, funny how this stuff comes full circle. But I want to address something here in closing. A secular article I found makes the striking observation that the aforementioned quotes about sustainable development and equity are eerily similar to what Francis wrote in Laudato Si, specifically about how environmental degradation and inequality go hand in hand, 
That language is all over Francis's famous encyclical, and it is at the heart of the technocratic movement for control of the environment, and it is fully embraced by Laudato Si, which is even more technocratic than previous conciliar encyclicals had been. But environmental control isn't the main thrust of the movement. Population control is. Through the spread of what we call around here Moloch worship. Tied to the sustainable development goals are the stated goals for spreading what people, what these people call gender equality, which typically isn't just voting rights for women or the ability to make, for women to make decisions about employment and to be treated in the, the same place as their male counterparts and other areas generally considered central to liberty. The maniacs mean that population control measures such as medical Moloch worship must be spread by the Western countries to the poorer developing countries. If you've noticed that there is a certain irony to this, you're not alone. On the one hand, these are the same people who often decry the colonialism of the Western countries, while on the other hand, they themselves use the UN and governments of the West to ideologically colonize these same countries. And they do it in the most evil way imaginable, by forcing the governments of those host countries to adopt policies that result in the deaths of countless defenseless people. It's truly astonishing in its scope. But that's enough for now, I think. Sustainable development is a huge topic, and one that the Church has been involved in. I'll continue to go over this material in the future so you can understand just what it is the Church has been promoting for 50 years now, but especially with renewed vigor in the past decade. Prior to the past decade, it hadn't really been that much of a focus of the Church. But what do you think of all this? I'm genuinely curious. For those who want to read the documents, I have sources on the Sources blog as usual, which is linked in the description of this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.